Just this week, the Canberra Times put out an a, a interesting article. It was taking a critical look at the church and actually produced a really positive outlook about who we are. It was written by a left-leaning journalist who also identifies as a progressive in their outlook and is an active climate protest movement, uh, part of the, the, one of the climate protest movement going on around the place. And the result of this article is that they've actually called for other progressives, so-called progressives, to consider the way the church operates, consider its effect on communities, and actually take significant cues from our expression. It was an interesting read. Um, uh, Here's some of the phrases. They gather in suburbs all across the country. Black, white, old, rich, young and poor. Young, old, old, young, rich, poor. In a radical political incubator called church. That's an interesting way that they see us. It makes note that church attendance in Australia is between 4 to 6% of the population each weekend. And research for decades has told us that this is actually a bigger than needed portion of a community to unite and stand for effective change. It's actually bigger than the, the, than the protest climate, right? The climate protesters right now. You only need 3% of a community group to affect real change in a community. We're almost double that any given Sunday. He goes on to write this. What if a life lived in protest involved taking time out every weekend to gather and serve your local community? To join together under a more unified story, young and old, to sing songs, read ancient wisdom literature, mediate, serve the poor, and develop dense networks with people beyond our immediate interest groups. Pretty, that's a, that's a, this is a criti- critical look at the church and going, here are the strengths that the protest movement, going for climate change, trying to make a big difference in the world around them, going, look to the church and have a crack and have a look at how they do things. <clears throat> they suggest that there is more care, more sense of purpose and better mental health in what we're doing, saying that in the wake of the bushfire crisis, while we progressives stoke our anger, vent on social media and get more stressed and depressed, they, the church, use ancient practice to care for souls. So there's a heap of other stuff in that article. It's probably worth uh, sharing. If, If there's enough interest later, I'll put it on the church Facebook page to share it. In many ways, it actually reminds me of the ancient letter by Roman Emperor Julian who called for Roman officials to essentially try to out-Christian the church uh, and in their behaviour and their treatment of others. Now, it's wonderful. You see, the beautiful thing about progressive ideology is that they're going for this utopian thing. The kingdom of God promises something that's going to be amazing at the end of time. Jesus is going to be king of something truly amazing. The progressives want it now on their terms without God. And so what they're calling for here they can pursue that all they like, but they're never going to fully deliver it because they don't have the work of the Holy Spirit in their life driving it. If you just take the work of the Spirit and take that on board, it's amazing what God can do through that. 
I'm saying all this is that the power of the people of God is a powerful force when it values unity and it sticks to its core values and convictions. When we simply stick to being who we are as followers of Christ, when we carry ourselves right and conduct ourselves well according to the red letters spoken by the person we follow, we will see something truly special. We will be something truly for the world to see. I mean, imagine what this journalist could write about us if we actually had our act together. When things like the Royal Commission showed no blemish, blemishes within our ranks, things like that. Imagine some of the stuff that could be written if there were other things, if, we, if God's people didn't have blemishes going on in our track record over the years. And also, imagine the greater things we can do when we stop bunkering down in the belief that we are the persecuted minority when decades of research, secular research, has known otherwise for decades. Speaking of blemishes, this short first series of 2020 is titled Unblemished. And it's going to take a bit of a look at the way the people of God are called to carry themselves and look at some important ways in which we do that. And it's amazing what God calls important when we consider the passage that we're going to be looking at through this time. To tell this story, we're going to be journeying through a book in the Minor Prophets that for the most part, we only know one or two verses. If you've sat through a number of offering speeches before an offering has been taken in other churches, then you're probably going to know one verse really well. But otherwise, it's not often visited. And there is a much bigger story to tell than the one verse when we take in the whole work. And it's a story well worth retelling and reflecting on as we go here. So to start us off today, our inspiration for the next seven weeks is actually going to be the book of Malachi. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you open up to chapter one now? I'll give you time to do that. For those who might not be familiar with this book, or maybe you only know that one verse out of chapter 3, let me give you some info on what we're looking at here, okay? So, all right, first, this is an address to the people of God. We need to know that. It's God's people being addressed here. It's Israel being addressed very clearly. It's the last one captured in Scripture before the coming of Christ. It's addressed to people intended to be the ministers to the world around them. One could easily say that this is the Old Testament equivalent of the church. It's a church state that is supposed to be at work making God's kingdom and presence felt among themselves and be a light and a blessing to the Gentiles. We know that these people came from the unlikeliest of places. It was an extended family of slaves in a land 500 k's west of where they were current, where they, their nation actually turned out to be. In a period of 40 years, they became known by everyone around them as a powerhouse that shouldn't be messed with. With common knowledge that the God of their people was the reason behind their success. And opposition armies tried all sorts of creative and aggressive tactics to stop their progress. 
And what's amazing is that that 40-year rise to power actually took place in the wilderness before they even called something home yet. You don't need a location to be known as a powerful people. Then they did arrive at their, gener- at their, their destination. This is happening about 1500 to 1400 BC, all this stuff taking place. And once settled in Canaan, their rise as a religious and national power took place at a pretty steady, steady pace. There was a lot of hit and miss stuff. You read Judges, you see lots of you know, you know, good and bad and you know, rising and falling happening amongst that. But they got on with the job eventually. A few hundred years onwards from there came their highest time. The heights of its history is with David and Solomon. The temple was built by Solomon, and, uh, and, and that was just where the, 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 it was the golden period for the nation of Israel at that particular time. Then they had a pretty terrible fall. Solomon was, as we know, half-hearted in his faith, and the nation suffered for it. His son Rehoboam was a pretty bad leader. And he pretty much led the nation to what is essentially history's first recorded church split. Judah with its capital of Jerusalem went one way, Israel with its capital of Samaria went the other. And frankly, they never got back, they never got back from whatever they had. From the unity, from the big nation that they were, to the split, they never really reconciled that. They never got what they had back. Subsequent leadership failed time and again with only short glimmers of hope adorning the regal timeline. Guys like Hezekiah and Judah did well, but it was too little too late. We also know of the nasty kings, Omri, Ahab, these guys taking the northern kingdom further and further away from who they were under God. Samaria and Israel fell. Assyria came in, destroyed the place in 722 BC, took all of its inhabitants away to live out in Nineveh and surrounding suburbs. And this is all about assimilation to the Assyrian way so that their God-placed roots could be completely cut off in favour of humanism and paganism. Judah thought they got off scot-free, but that wasn't lasting. Their disobedience caused their fall to Babylon in 586 BC. So Judah stopped being a sovereign nation at that point and Israel is pretty much off the map as a sovereign nation from here on in. The story up to this point is that Israel had a promise. They were a set-apart people. They had a calling. They had a job to do. And they threw it all back in God's face. They emerged from slavery at the hand of God, but became idolatrous and wicked when things got good for them. So God allowed them to go back into slavery again. And you'd hope by now that the nation was learning its lessons and not wanting to repeat history. Well, Judah did get some of the picture and got to return. But 70 years is a lot of time lost that could have been used to shine light to the world, right? That's two or three generations affected. All because of their idolatry and their sin. 
and also for their neglect. The orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the, 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 all these people, that, that, the people who can't speak up for themselves, being ignored in their midst, and God warning time and time again. It's probably a greater wickedness than even their idolatry. With the northern kingdom, more than 27,000 of the nation's best were taken to slavery. And history can't record a time when they were permitted to return back. So after the captivity, Israel was a decimated force and a shadow of its former self. But then hope, with Jerusalem being the center of that hope. A remnant was allowed to return and rebuild. A priest named Ezra led the charge initially. A God-led administrator named Nehemiah kept the work going. Then the, some other minor prophets uh, called that diminished nation back to the Lord in that process. And the last of those is Malachi. Even as we get to that point, we see that God still has a plan to use the nation he established and raised up in promise. So the challenge remains here. Will they take up God's new challenge to them after two bouts of slavery and around a thousand years of hidden misfaith expression? Or will they curl up and die forgetting what they were called to be? That's the crossroads this church nation is at as we begin to explore our text today. We're going to look at the first five verses today and just see what the Lord wants to say to them to us, and of course to me, to you. First one says this, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. A prophecy. Have you ever had information that you were simply bursting to tell someone? You ever had that information? It's like, oh, I'm just so excited to tell you this. You know, you know it's like, and you just, and, and you can't wait for the burst out. Has anyone here, is there anyone here who has the worst time trying to hold in a secret, particularly good, juicy ones? Are there people in our lives that we just know to never tell about with an upcoming surprise? If you're doing a surprise birthday party, there's probably people you just don't tell, right? If you are that kind of person, you might better understand how Malachi feels here. The word prophecy here, the Hebrew word massa, also it has been translated in other places as oracle or burden. There is something in the heart of this man that cannot be contained. It must come out. In fact, it is designed to come gushing out because that's what a compelling prophetic word is designed to do. If God gives us something to share, it should be compelling. It should be bursting out of us. If we're making prophetic statements to the world around us, it needs to come bursting out of us. It needs to be compelling. A prophecy, that's the first word. Let's keep moving along here. We've got five verses. The seventh word is a standout also, just quickly, to Israel. A prophecy, the word of the Lord, to Israel. 
Now, at this point, the North Kingdom is still in tatters. Judah and Jerusalem is the only part that actually has a form of identity to it. This was divided 300 years prior through poor leadership and dysfunction. And even when you go into the New Testament, you have Samaria that no one wants to touch. You've got Galilee to the north, which is devoid of any real godly leadership, and then you've got Judah to the south. It still remained that way even in New Testament times. But the Lord is still addressing it all as one people to Israel, to my people. The people of God might not be on the same page at this point. But the Lord is still calling for a collective response to his sovereign word. All of God's people are called here to put difference aside and feel included in this because the God of the whole is calling on the whole to respond. Even today, if we understand who we are collectively and as if we respond as a whole, good things can take place. The Bible tells us clearly there is power in unity. And together amongst all the churches of this city, we actually have that critical percentage to affect real change in our community. And if we did collect as a whole, I doubt we'd be walking in the persecution complex that seems to be out there right now. Because we're not that minority. Now, Israel has is giving their attention to God. God now gives details on what he wants heard. Here we go. Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build it, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. The very first thing God wants them to acknowledge is the love he has for them. And it's clear that these people are having a hard time even comprehending that. Israel was called to be pure light in a dark and chaotic world. That is the very nature of what light is. God said, let there be light. And in a place that was void without form, where there was chaos, God brought light and restored order so that creation could move on from there. Bringing light into darkness is restoring order from chaos. But for a long time, these guys have been content to live in the shadows. Israel was living out that unfulfilling life where they would avoid doing evil because they didn't want to fall short of God's favor. But at the same time, they were doing as little as possible to draw near to him as well doing just enough to not be sinful, but not doing enough to be holy. Doing just enough to be saved, but not enough to be a disciple. 
whenever we find ourselves in that shadowy sort of faith expression, then understanding properly the love God has for us will always be a constant source of doubt and frustration. The more we draw near to God, the more we pursue a journey of discipleship, the more we engage with God, not just go, all right, I'm just going to try harder not to sin, but instead I'm just going to fully fall at the feet of Jesus and rely on his grace. You see, eventually when we go, I'm going to try harder not to sin, that will devolve into, I'm not going to try at all. Whereas, understanding that God loves us and invites us to draw near to him, calls us closer, calls us to sit at his feet, to grow and to learn, to, to, to be shaped by him, to know him at this intimate level that, that we can, that just, he knows us, we know him, we have this sacred thing called fellowship with the Trinity. When God calls us into that place and we follow and we go, I want that. You get to a place where there is no doubting the love God has for us. But if we just treat our faith like hell insurance and, oh, I know Jesus, I'm not going to hell no more. Well, I'm just going to sit here stagnant. You will get to a point where you just stop trying. There will always be doubt and frustration in that place. And we know this attitude is present because of their response. How exactly have you loved us? You kind of get the idea that these guys are in a sour mood with God right now. Our nation's been decimated. We've spent seven decades in slavery, another three decades in recovery. And we're supposed to see your love in all this, God. How have you loved us exactly? You ever been in a sour mood with the Lord? Yeah, I have. My expectations in life are not being met for one reason or another. And somehow you still want me to bask in your love, God? Really? Isn't love all about getting blessed and prospering and all that one does? Isn't love about having all my trials and issues suddenly disappear? How am I supposed to see God's love in all this when none of my problems have actually disappeared? Instead, I'm hurting and I'm broken here on this earth right now. For one thing, for Israel, we're supposed to see love in God when discipline comes our way. Like where they've just been in Babylon and Assyria. They've already had that in writing by this time. Two different writers in very different times tells us that. Job 5.17, Proverbs 3.11, both tell us to not despise the Lord's discipline because it is one of the proofs of his love. If he didn't love us, there would not be any discipline. There would not be any correction. If he didn't care, he wouldn't correct. If he didn't love us, he'd leave us to our own devices and not put any bumper stops in the laneway to stop us doing the silly stuff. This is backed up for Christians and Hebrews as well as the words of Jesus himself in Revelation 3. Whom I love, I discipline. But in this text we see that this is where God reminds them of who they are exactly. 
To love Jacob and to hate Esau is to demonstrate the depth of concern God has always had for his people and how committed he is to them, even when they are not committed to him. The idea of love here is about the way God entered covenant with a people. I have loved you. I have entered covenant with you. This covenant began in Genesis with Abraham. It was a one-sided blood covenant. It was extended to all the generations of the patriarchs. It was remembered in Exodus 2 before the slave nation would be freed. Covenant and marriage are interchangeable concepts here. So the sense of love that is in place here is is God entered an arrangement that he would not back out of. He would betroth himself to a people. The word hate here is not the bitter or harm-seeking way we think of it. The Hebrew word can be used that way, but more frequently it gets used as a form of separating a favoured person from another. If one is loved, the other is unloved. If one is favoured, the other is rejected. If I have loved my wife, I have rejected the, the whole rest of the women in the world, right? That's kind of the idea in place here. I've got a person. God says, I've got a people and I've rejected the others. I'm making this group elect to do what I need to do for my kingdom. This is the line that has been drawn here for the benefit of the people of God. And it can be retold, retold this way. I made a promise, and I'm going to be faithful to that. The promise was made on the basis of love, not obligation. Out of love, I raised up and separated a people. That people has needed to work at times rather than having everything handed to them on a platter. That people has been disciplined along the way. There have been seasons where you've needed to come to your senses, and I've been happy to facilitate this in ways you would get the message. Freedom in me or slavery to sin. But I've been faithful to bring you back. When you're in Egypt under heavy labor, I heard your cry. When in Babylon, you longed to see Zion again, and I heard your cry. When you drew back to me, I restored you to your intended purpose because I chose you, I love you, and I will be faithful to you. And if we look at the rest of this passage, God says this. If you can't see that, take a look at what you enjoy and what the world does not. They, through their actions, have rejected me and I reject them. Their work will not flourish and yours will. Their influence on the world will be halted by me while the influence you wield in my name will flourish. What they build up, I will tear down. When they get stubborn, they will keep trying to build and they will always find me there to stop them. When they continue in sin, they will find themselves under my wrath. But you, people of God, will be witness of my greatness, not just in your midst, but outside your borders and boundaries as well. That's what God is essentially saying to Malachi, through Malachi, to the people of Israel. And I see hints of, you know what, I believe that's something that's even compelling for our church age today also. That God is faithful. God will be committed to his people and he will continue to use his people. And whatever the world wants to build up against the power of God, he will use people like us to be a standard against that. And to be a voice and a light in the darkness. And and to be a, a, a source of order where the chaotic world wants to try to fight God. Because he loves us. 
And he betrothes himself to us. Jesus continued that betrothal to us. I go to prepare a place for you. That is a betrothal statement. God said, I enter covenant with you. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then when it's time, I'm going to come sweep you off your feet and I'm going to take you home with me. Consistent with first century wedding talk right there. This is just a really simple starting point for us today. We're going to build on this in in coming weeks, but I'm going to come back to the title of this series and how it pertains to our text. In Malachi, God's people are blemished. Their attitudes and their actions are going to be examined really thoroughly, but also quite concisely, given it's only four chapters. Each blemish that we examine here is actually stopping a church state in 400 BC from fulfilling its mission. But I also believe these blemishes can hamstring the modern church also. Our practices won't be the same. Christians have a whole different expression because of Jesus. But we still have a continuing story of God setting apart a people, that's who we are, What started in the mission of Israel continues through the mission of the church. God is still in the business of making his glory felt and known throughout the world. And he he used Israel at the start, he uses the churches today. So let's look at the first blemish that is in place among God's people here. The inability to see the fullness of God's love for them. Simple as that. The inability to see who they are in him. These guys have been living in that shadowy place. Do just enough to not be sinful. Do as little as possible to draw near to God. The torch is on, but the setting's at its lowest one. Israel has a diminished light. And they're not being a blessing to the nations as promised. Partly because they could not get their head around God's love for them. That allowed their circumstances to actually contradict what God has already said. That allowed their feelings to actually dictate their theology. God's word is enough. God's faithfulness will stand forever. And if he says, I love you, if he says, you are my people and I am committed to you, if he says, this is my covenant towards you, then how we feel, sometimes we'll fight that, but how we feel needs to be subject to that. What God says is where we need to be at. And Israel could not communicate it further to those outside of their experience of it because of this. When they're always in doubt, when they're always in the shadows, they're going to walk in this belief that they've got nothing else to offer anybody else either. I feel this might be for some people. It's time for us to grasp afresh the depth 
of the love God has for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died, was buried, rose again, and promised to return for us, using betrothal language to make that point. Jesus meant what he said. And if we're letting circumstances get in the way, how about thinking about this? If he never does anything else for us in this life, other than what he did 2,000 years ago, he's actually already done enough. Seriously. He's already done more than enough for us to know truly his love. If he does nothing else for us again, the death, the resurrection, the promise to return is proof enough of the love of God. If we gauge his love by other temporal things, things pertaining to our earthly needs and prosperity, the idea that problems disappear and our earthly dreams are lived up to, then we will always end up with a diminished and distorted idea of this love that God has. We know in Revelation, two churches didn't have this worked out. Ephesus lived in the shadowy realms of faith. They ticked the right boxes but didn't love Christ. And their capacity for love was overtaken by intolerance. And Jesus calls them to return, to repent from their fallen state. Go back to where you fell. And that fallenness has to do with that element of love. Laodicea, a church that some scholars suggest prophetically speaks of the modern West and the return of Christ imminent, got to the point that they couldn't make their mind up whether they loved the Lord or not. When we get heavily intolerant or ignorant of the world around us, we may be operating out of a poor understanding of God's love. When we identify in faith solely by what we don't do rather than what we actually stand for, we may be in the wrong place with the Lord. When we're apathetic about our faith, we enter dangerous territory. Christianity is supposed to be more than existing in a shadowy space. Not doing bad things, but not achieving good, all that much good either. That's not where God's people are called to be. Apathy, indifference, half-heartedness, the inability to feel or express God's love. This is the first blemish in the faith expression of Israel that God wants to address. How about us? Are we beginning this year with a clear sense of being light in the darkness of this world? Are we entering this year with a clear sense of the love of God that is for us? Or is this blemish pushing us further into the shadowy, lesser version of our faith expression? Frankly, only you know. And I believe if we open ourselves to the Spirit at this time, He's going to show you where you're at with that.
Is the Lord calling us to stop, to reflect on God, to reflect on His promises, to reflect on the promise Jesus made, to reflect on all the things that have been said, that Jesus says, I will never cast all your cares on Him, to, to I will come back for you. There is a, a, I am committed to you. This is the blood of my covenant towards you. That We've got all these understandings in Scripture about who Jesus is to us and what that means about the love of God for us. Maybe it's time to reflect on that afresh. Why don't we bow our heads just for a moment?